So Judges chapter 6, I'm reading verse number 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was, when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east even they came up against them, and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till they had come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their tent, sorry, with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And then down to verse number 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and Abi Ezer was gathered after him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher and unto Zebulun, and unto Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early in the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wring the dew out of the fleece and a bowl of water. Wring the dew out of the fleece a bowl full of water. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece, let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Now that's our reading. We're going to be thinking about Gideon and his fleece, so we're not going to think so much of the details about that are recorded in chapter 6 that um, pre-curse this. We're not going to think about Gideon and the sacrifice that he made and the initial call of God upon his life, but rather this incident that takes place in his life when he puts out a fleece, which has become another common expression. When you think about David and Goliath, then that is a common picture. When you think about Gideon and his fleece, putting out a fleece has become an expression that is commonly used. And we're going to see in this uh, incident what exactly is meant by this, and is this something that we should do? Is this something that we should uh, copy in our lives, perhaps not with a literal fleece, but should we put God to the test in this way? Now, we were thinking about Samson the other day there, and Gideon is quite a contrast to Samson. Gideon is pretty different from Samson in his character, and when you think of his life, he really is a lesson and speaking to those of us who are conscious of our own weakness, who feel our own weakness, and are inhibited by it. Now, Samson was the exact opposite. He felt 
strong and he was complacent about it. So there is a different aspect stressed here in the life of this servant of God. Now the context is this is what you might call the eighth annual invasion of Midian. It had become an annual event and they come with overwhelming force and a kind of shock and awe tactic with more than 135,000 men in their army. And they arrive down again in amongst the people of God to destroy. And they are, uh, they are the enemies of God's people, the Midianites. And they were descendants of Abraham and Keturah and stepbrothers really to the people of God. Their name um, had the connotation of strife, Midian and strife. And the meaning of Midian is strife. And the effect of their presence amongst the people of God is very instructive. They also came with the Amalekites, who were again enemies of God's people. And the Amalekites, who were descended from Esau, were traditionally uh, representing in the Old Testament the flesh and the effect of the flesh. So you've got strife and you've got the flesh pictured. And then you've got the children of the East. We call them folk from Edinburgh. The children from the East. And they come and they lived in the desert on the east of Palestine and they are a kind of motley crew and they invade and come amongst the people of God. Now this is the effect, and that's why I read at the beginning of the chapter, because in verse number two, the effect of those people amongst God's people, the effect of them attacking is described. Now we are going to spiritualize the effect. So we're thinking about Midian, the meaning of the name is strife. So we are taking Midian as representing strife. We're thinking of the Amalekites as representing the flesh. And we're thinking about the two things coming together and being present amongst God's people. So the spiritual lesson is that this is what happens when the flesh dominates or raises its ugly head. And when there is strife amongst God's people, this is what happens. So verse 2, they lost their freedom. The hand of Midian prevailed against Israel and they're hiding in dens and mountains and caves and strongholds. So they've lost their freedom of movement. Now that happened before in the days of Jael and Shamgar and it seems to be one of the first casualties of God's discipline amongst his people. The enjoyment of the land is restricted by the consequences of their sin and their strife removes freedom Amongst God's people. The people become fearful. They become introverted. Now make the application of that yourself. When there is strife amongst God's people, this is what happens. People become introverted. They lose their freedom. They start to sneak about the place. And they start to be apprehensive about meeting other people. And they start to dread social contact with certain people. This is what strife does. It restricts people's freedom and enjoyment of blessings that God has given us. Second thing is just this, in verse number three and four, they lost their harvest when the Midianites were there. So when they sowed and it was time for harvest, lo and behold, Midian turns up. Now you see the spiritual application. Whenever the people of God are working for God and whenever we are working and we are just about to reap a spiritual harvest, guess what turns up? Strife. I remember Bill Steveley, who may be known to some of you, I remember Bill Steveley saying to me when I was kind of 
bemoaning uh, turbulent times uh, back home. I remember him saying to me, listen, Stephen, you don't have any problems with a dead body. It's the ones that are living that give you the grief. And when you think about that in the application of a local assembly and you think of that in the application of a group of Christians, then where there is life, there is the potential for strife. Where there's nothing going on, then you'll not have any bother whatsoever. Folk will just come and go and there'll be no problems. So there's a harvest here and the enemy wants the harvest. They want to destroy the harvest and they come and they destroy the fruit of their labour. And the Midianites came like locusts, which is the effect of strife amongst God's people. All the work comes to nothing and is devastated by strife. So you can see this is a very negative thing, destructive thing. And it loses or it robs the people of God of their fruitfulness for God. But also verse number six, they lost their well-being. It says this, that Israel was brought very low because of Midian. So this is a direct consequence of strife and of their disobedience. Sin brings them low. Sin does not lift them up. Sin brings them down. And so they were brought low. They were miserable. They were worse off. No one is better off when strife exists amongst God's people. No one profits. No one grows spiritually in the midst of strife. It's a destructive thing. It brings you low. It diminishes the people of God. It does no one any good. So that's the conditions which are the context, the background of God raising up Gideon. It's not exactly a promising environment. For God to work. You've got the people of God with their freedom restricted, their liberty restricted, their fruitfulness destroyed. You've got them losing their spiritual well-being. And in the midst of all of that, God raises up this man. Now let's jump right over to verse 34, which is the part of the story we want to focus in on. And we are missing a fair bit of the story, which you can read in your own time. But when you get to verse number 34, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now the idea is just this, that if you have read about Gideon prior to this, you have discovered that Gideon seemed to be a bit of a hesitant person. And he could hardly believe that God would use him. He was so insignificant in his own eyes. God would hardly choose him and use him and raise him up to do mighty things in the land. Not him, of all people, surely not him. That was his default position. Well, it says here that the Spirit of the Lord came, and the idea literally is this, that the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. And suddenly, Gideon's like a different man. And the people recognise the transforming power of God in him, and they flocked to him when he sounded his clarion call for action. The people of God come to him, they're attracted to him. God is with him, God is working in him, and so the people come to him, that there may be deliverance. So there's a direct context. Now we have the fleece. Now, in Scotland, a fleece means a different... A fleece is a kind of thing you wear when it's cold. And uh, we're thinking here about a literal fleece. And these five verses have become, for many in our day, a method for determining God's will in their life. 
So, for example, if you were to go into a Christian bookshop or online somewhere and you were to um, go into a section that dealt with, you know, making decisions or determining God's will or something like that, you most definitely would find something to do with Gideon's fleece, no question about it. And you would find language like you need to put a fleece and you need to this and that and, and you need to look for signs and so forth. Well, Gideon is faced with leading an army against God's enemy. And here he asks God for a sign, twice in fact. First he throws out a fleece on his threshing floor and he asks that the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. God heard his request and did it. And then he asks for a reversal of the sign. The next time the fleece be dry, the ground be wet, God granted him this sign as well. And there's no comment on it from the Lord. You only have the narrative. You have no comment as to whether this is good or bad. It's just there in the face of Scripture. And then Gideon moves on the basis of this and he goes into battle. So, how is this applied often? So then when people are faced with a decision, for example, to take a job or not to take a job, to study a subject or not to study a subject, where to live, who to marry, all the kind of um, decisions of life, the kind of crossroad decisions of life, then it may well be that someone who's faced with such a decision prays about it. And that doesn't make any difference. Okay, so they pray about it, but the decision, when they stop praying about it, the decision still needs to be made and nothing's changed. So praying about it is not like some sort of magical incantation that suddenly there is going to be an answer jumps into your head out of nowhere because you've prayed. So what then are you going to do if you pray about something and you still are undecided? So then it may well be you decide to ask God for a sign. And you construct a scenario in your mind and you say to God, if this is your will for me to do what I'm going to do anyway, if this is your will, then, and you've got some scenario. And these scenarios seem to vary with the person's imagination. Now, remember that Gideon asked God to do the miraculous. And something that was clearly and evident an act of God and not a coincidence or not a subjective turn of events. Serendipity was not really the issue here. If you don't know what that means, have a look in the dictionary. Serendipity was not the issue. So then, what is this? Well, when you look at what Gideon was doing, Gideon wasn't trying to find out God's will. He already knew it. God had spoken to him very clearly. If you look back in verse number 12, it says this, that the angel of the Lord <coughs> appeared unto him and said unto him, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And there's a conversation between Gideon and the angel of the Lord. And Gideon is clear in his own mind he's conversing with God. And 
as God speaks right down to verse number 18, there is a clear understanding from Gideon as to God's will for him, God's purpose for him, what God wants him to do. There's no doubt about it. It's crystal clear. He, God had promised Gideon military victory over Midian and there is the response of the peace offering, offered the sacrifice and so forth, and that's all done. And he clothes Gideon with his spirit and he moves an army to assemble round about him. Now Gideon twice acknowledges in his own words what the purpose of God is in his life. Verse 36 and verse 37 Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, here's the expression, as thou hast said. So he perfectly and clearly understands what God's word is in this situation. That's not the issue. He's not seeking new information. God has been clear. Gideon was certain that it was God speaking to him, and he was certain what God was saying. So then, this is not, if you don't know what to do, you stick a fleece out. That's not what this is. You see, the problem that Gideon faced was this. Gideon seemed to find it impossible to believe that God would actually accomplish this purpose through him. And God, he's seeking God's affirmation with a sign that he would be the man to carry out God's purpose and will. He knew what God wanted done. He knew what the right thing to do was. He just found it difficult to grasp that he would be able to be used by God to accomplish this. Well, that's a different thing. Self-doubt seemed to have been the issue. Was he up to the task? Well, let's ask a question then. Should we test God in this way when we've got decisions to make? Should we have some sort of scheme or test or look for a sign? Can we even trust our subjective assessment of circumstances, events, or what other people say to us? Do we have the ability to subjectively assess that and come to a conclusion can we say with certainty that God speaks in signs as he did in Gideon's experience well remember this when you're thinking about that remember that these were different days there's no question about that God dealt in different ways with his people Gideon had access to scripture but only I think the first six books of scripture which would be the, the Pentateuch and also the book of Joshua I think he would have access to nothing more had been written yet God was still speaking in this way through prophets and angels and he still authenticated his inspired message by means of signs and wonders at this time the canon of scripture was not complete but even in Gideon's day when that was the case such was extremely rare this was not an everyday occurrence. It wasn't that he walked down the street and he says, I'll go left or right, and he stuck a fleece out and said, right, it's obviously left, we're going left today. 
It's not, you know, should should I slaughter this animal or that animal? Should I buy this? And it wasn't in his day-to-day business life. He was throwing fleeces out left, right and centre. God did not do that type of thing in that sort of way. And it's wrong to think that he did. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, it says the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, is what it says. The miraculous was extremely unusual in those days. And when God did communicate, it was clearly of God and miraculous. For example, in the days of Hezekiah, Hezekiah is asking for a sign. And he says to Isaiah, what shall the sign be that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Show me a sign. Well, what kind of sign is God going to show that will be unmistakable? Listen to this. Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? The shadow and the sundown. We're talking about stellar movements in the universe. And so Hezekiah says, this is what Hezekiah says, he says, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. I wouldn't have thought so, but he seemed to think, well, that, that's easy. Let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord and he brought the shadow back ten steps. Unmistakable. Dramatic. Miraculous. Today, we're we're in a different scenario. Today we have the completed word of God, which is, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, sufficient to equip for every good work. There is a sufficiency in divine revelation as we have it in the scriptures for every good work. Scripture teaches its own sufficiency for us as the people of God. Now mind you, we all do exhibit Gideon-like tendencies from time to time, unsure, hesitant and so forth. And actually what Gideon was doing was putting God in a box. He was telling God what to do what conditions had to be met it was not so much to discover what God's will was but it was rather to bring himself into obedience to what God's will is and you know I think this that most of the time when we speak about the will of God we know exactly what the will of God is we know exactly what the right thing is to do most of the time it's more a question of obedience than of revelation and bringing yourself and being Subject to what we know is right from Scripture. Spurgeon said this, Beware of seeking for signs of of the supernatural rather than seeking the supernatural Saviour himself. Now mind you again, when you think about these signs, there was a symbolism and significance in these signs. It wasn't any old thing. Just... As the offering early in the chapter consumed by fire was pictorial and prophetic, so was this fleece. There's a beautiful kind of uh, typology in this fleece. You see, the signs which God granted were not silly or arbitrary. It wasn't that Gideon just dreamed up the first thing into his head that was convenient. But when you think about this, 
For example, another one is when God appears to Moses in the bush that burned and was not consumed. That communicates is something of the character of God to Moses. It wasn't arbitrary. It was a communication of who God is. And that was the sign. When you think about this, you think about this fleece. Think about Israel, like the sheep in the hands of the shepherd. Think about the Jew, God's blessing, falling, first of all, upon Israel and not the nations round about. And then you think about the reversal of it. And then the Jew falls, not upon the fleece, but upon the nations round about. There's a prophetic sequence in these things. You get it also in the three miracles that were given to Moses before he went into Egypt and before he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And so you've got this idea of Gideon and you've got the offerings and then you've got this idea of the blessings falling in this chapter. There was significance to the signs. I always think about this. I find it quite funny, see, that's why I always refer to it. And I always remember, I can't even remember who said it, but I can remember listening to it, and then I've said it that many times. And when you think about some people who look for silly signs, just silly signs. And the story goes about the missionary, and he was wanting to know where he was going to serve the Lord, you know, so he was walking down the road, staring about him, looking for a sign. And then he saw, he saw a shop window with sweets in it, so he went... And he saw a packet of Brazil nuts. He thought, Brazil is. And then he's telling someone, he said, it was just as well, wasn't it a Mars bar? And then, <laughs> see, I think that's really funny. And that is subjective assessment of what is not a sign. There's actually a packet of sweets sitting in a shop window. And looking all around you, looking for the miraculous and the dramatic in things that are not miraculous or dramatic and basing life decisions on a subjective basis. You could think it means one thing one day and think it means something else the other day, completely subjective. That is no way to determine how or where you should be in your life for God. Well, Gideon puts his fleece out and God moves. I read this, and I've noted it down, an extremely bad example of seeking God's will. Now, I'll read it to you. When John Wesley was 32 years old, which is very young, he was a bachelor missionary in the colony of Georgia. And while serving in a church in Savannah, he met a young woman named Sophia. And Wesley fell in love with her, but he belonged to a... This is quite amusing as well. He belonged to a group of idealistic young men in London called the Holy Club. It's not very, it's not a trendy name really, is it? Called the Holy Club. And one of their ideals was that members should remain single. So Wesley's dilemma was, was it the will of God for him to marry Sophia or not? So, to determine God's will, he and a friend decided to draw from three lots in which were written, either marry, think not of it this year, or think of it no more. Okay. Well, his friend drew for Wesley and selected think of it no more. Wesley was heartbroken but took it to be the will of God. He ended the courtship left America for England 
and wrote in his journal, snatched as a brand out of the fire. Charming. Shortly after returning to, in, to England, Wesley got saved. He wasn't a Christian at that stage. He then got saved. And he began his gospel ministry from that point on. During his travels, he fell in love with another woman, but this time tried a different approach to discerning the will of God. He listed seven characteristics he desired in a wife, then evaluated the prospective wife by each, and concluding, therefore, all my seven arguments against marriage are totally set aside, nay, some of them seem to prove that I ought to marry, and such and such is the person. Unfortunately, John's brother Charles got wind of this and did not agree, so he went post-haste to her, Grace Murray, her name was, and told her, Grace Murray, you have broken my heart. Then he fainted at her feet. That shook Grace Murray so badly, she hastily married another man. That's actually true. It's unbelievable. So Charles Wesley got involved, spoke to the prospective wife, and made sure it didn't happen, and the prospective wife married somebody else. Strike two for Wesley in regard to discerning the will of God. Finally, a year and a half later, John Wesley did marry a wealthy widow. And I'm not sure whether the significance is the widow or the wealthy, but he did marry a wealthy widow. Mary, her name was, we don't know his criteria for choosing her, maybe in that title, but we do know the result. He had an extremely unhappy marriage. And 20 years later, she left him. At which time he wrote, I have not left her, but I will not recall her. So much for Wesley discerning the will of God in regard to whom he was to marry. He used silly means of determining the answer to the second most significant issue in his life. Now, you would think that that man was a spiritual pygmy. Well, he wasn't, actually. That's John Wesley. John Wesley did great things for God. But in this issue, he made big mistakes. Because he did not have an objective, biblical approach to discerning God's will when making decisions. It was subjective. Well then, what do we do? Do we do what Gideon did? No, we don't. Let me be clear. No, we don't. That is not how we as Christians determine God's will. Rarely in life do we have situations where we simply do not know, but we do have these occasions. Usually, the majority of times, it's to seek the moral courage and willingness to do what we know we should do. And perhaps we don't want to do so what then about the will of God? Well, there are two things about the will of God just to bring to you. And it's this. First of all, you've got an aspect of the will of God that you might put titles over, such as the sovereign will of God or the determinate, determinative will of God, titles like that. And they express this, that in Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11, it says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So then there is an inflexible, unalterable will of God that stands. 
God's will will come to pass. God's purpose will be done. Nothing that happens on earth will alter that. God said he will do it. He will fulfill what he has said. Isaiah 46 verse 9 to 11 says this. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one else like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. There is a very strong declaration of God's will in those verses. That God's will is going to come to pass. Nothing can change it. Psalm 135 verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 speaks about the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. One writer put it this way, there is a will of God which belongs fully to him in which no person can bring about any consequence, any event, any circumstance that will change that eternal purpose. It is determined in his purpose and executed by his power. It will be done, it will always be done, and nothing other than it will be done. So in the big scheme of things, the history of the created universe moves from a divine beginning to a divine end, and God is in complete control as to how that comes about. But then what about our lives? The decisions that we have, the responsibility we have as we make these decisions. Listen, your failure to do God's will in your life will have no negative effect on God accomplishing his ultimate purpose. None. Do you really think that the God of the universe is going to be put off course by a decision that you make? Do you really think that the eternal God's purpose will be thwarted by me? No, it won't. God will providentially overrule and does overrule all those contingencies all those choices and he synthesizes them perfectly together as only he can in order to accomplish his will in a way that we cannot understand that is why he is God this is called divine providence where God has the capacity to take the infinite number of human choices on a daily basis and human contingencies and works them to his own glory and fulfilment of his eternal purpose. Listen to this. If God has a will for your life, he wants you to know it. It's not tucked obscurely under some convoluted interpretation of scripture that's only available to the select few. It's not left to some transcendental experience of intuition. It's not dependent upon some private, personal, angelic delivery. It's not ever dependent upon some serendipitous coincidence. If God has a will, and he does, and if he wants you to know it, and he does, and he holds you responsible, and he does, then you can be sure he hasn't hidden it. It's not under a stone somewhere. He places it in plain view. On the pages of his divine revelation.
the Bible. That's where you'll find it. That's where it is. And that's the only place you'll find it. It doesn't exist anywhere else. God's revelation is in his word. So then, listen to Psalm 37, verse 45, which to me is the best verse in relation to guidance that you can have. If you want to know what to do in order to know what to do, these verses tell you. Listen to them. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Simple. Nothing to do with visions and stones and, and trying to work out what this might mean and what that, and when the stars are aligned and all this kind of stuff. This is much harder, actually. So then, what is this? I need to make sure that the desires that emanate from my heart to which I respond are desires that are consistent with divine truth. And then when I do what I want to do, what I want to do is what God would have me do. Delight thyself in the Lord. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. What desires of your heart will you have? They're the outflowing of your delight in Christ. They're going to be consistent with the character of Christ. They're going to be consistent with the gospel of Christ. They're going to be consistent with the spirit of Christ. When you're delighting in him, then your character is being shaped. Your thinking is being shaped. Your decision-making is being shaped so that when you have choices to make, you don't need some special divine revelation. Your decision will be a decision out of a character, motivation and heart that is shaped in your relationship with Christ. It's a far more down-to-earth process than is sometimes spoken about. You follow the desires of your heart when you are delighting yourself in the Lord. You commit your way to the Lord and you trust in him. And it says this, you leave him to bring it to pass. Leave him to bring it to pass. People speak about open doors and you're taking a run and kicking and shoving and pushing and scratching and you're determined that this door is getting opened, well, eventually the door will open and you'll go tumbling through. But that's different from trusting the Lord. Taking care of your heart, taking care of your relationship with Christ and trusting him to open and shut to guide and direct and take you down that path that he would have you to go. What is the will of God for you in any event? Well, first of all, I would suggest it is that you be saved because God has said that. Secondly, it would be according to Ephesians 5, verse 17 to 18, that you be filled with the Spirit of God controlled by the Spirit because the Scripture says that. 
Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 7, it teaches us that this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, that we are marked by mutual submission and submission to spiritual authority and authority within society. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. That goes from the home to the workplace. That's the whole thing. You need to have that submissive attitude in society, in the workplace, in the house, and in your marriage. Suffering. Philippians 1.29, Timothy 3.12 you see, when you look for it, it's right there on the page of Scripture. What is the will of God for me? Well, if I don't have a chapter and verse as to a decision I face, <coughs> then I need to make sure when I'm not facing these big decisions that I am implementing Psalm 37, verse 45. And then when decisions have to be made, they'll be made out of a true heart, out of affection and love for Christ, in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you won't have a notion whether you're making the decision which is right or wrong at the time. I have a grave distrust of expressions like God said to me, God told me, I, you know, I am 100% convinced that this is the right thing to do. I've never been 100% convinced that most of the decisions I've made are the right things to do in these things. Until looking back, I can see, well, maybe that wasn't the best decision. Maybe there was a better option. Or, yes, that obviously was the right decision. And that kind of arrogance when you face a decision is dangerous. But if you're there in faith and trust and you're making the right decision out of a pure heart in relationship with Christ, then you trust him in the decision. You trust him. Delight thyself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust in him. And he shall bring it to pass. Three words. Delight, commit, trust. Delight, commit, trust. There it is. Trust that God will bless his word to us. Let's just pray.